Reading from Matthew verse 45 in chapter 27. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sakthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely He was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for His needs. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the Zebedee's sons. Let's take a moment to pray. God, we thank You so much for the sacred text that each of the four Gospels slow down intensely at this moment in history to convey to us the rich workings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Help us to glean from these eternal truths and help us to appreciate you more and more what you did for us on the cross. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you, but I enjoy a good science fiction movie. Uh, Jude does not get his love of Star Wars from, from no one. He gets it from someone. He gets it from me. I love blasters. I love lightsabers and all the rest. And one of the new ones I've sort of recently found, for some of you it might be quite old, is uh, the series called Firefly. It was a TV show. And they actually made a movie about it uh, called Serenity. Now, I haven't seen all of it. I've only seen bits and clips of it, but it has sparked my interest. It's the story of a crew on the outer edges of the galaxy, and they're trying to survive in dangerous life and times. And in this crew, there's a number of people, men and women, and one happens to be uh, a preacher, a priest of some kind. And he is given a Bible, believe it or not, on a nationally syndicated TV, he has given a Bible to one of the crew members. And she begins to read it. And she gets so upset as she starts tearing out pages and scratching out things, saying, this cannot happen, this does not make sense, there's absolutely no way all these animals could fit in the ark, or these facts could have happened. There's problems, there's lies, this isn't true. I'm ripping these out so that only we have the true evidence of the faith. Well, the priest talks to her and he sort of agrees with her that there are inconsistencies in Scripture, but he says, don't let, your, let that hurt your faith because faith transcends all of that. Well, brothers and sisters, that's not true. The facts of Scripture are put in Scripture for a reason. Because the writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, did not want us to miss the very significant things that God would have us to know. 
And today, as we look at Matthew, or if we look at Mark, or Luke, or John, as they pause at the time of Jesus' death on the cross, there are very eternally significant things that are happening. And we're going to look at a number of those in this passage. Uh, Two weeks ago, when I preached here last, I spoke about Jesus' plan. His direct plan that He was going to go to the cross no matter what. Remember we looked at Luke chapter 18? And Jesus said this to the disciples. This was the third and final time He predicted it. He said, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Don't forget that saying. We'll notice it later on. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him. And on the third day He will rise. That had been Jesus' goal from the very beginning. Remember, when the angel visited um, <clears throat> Mary, or I'm sorry, Joseph, He told Joseph that you will name Him Jesus. And then He gives the explanation of Jesus' names. He will save His people from all their sin. Not only in His naming, but in His personal goal, it had been focused on one thing. He was going to go to a cross to redeem His church. So for almost three years, He had taught His disciples and people around Him the kingdom of God and and where it was going. But as the hour approached, we know too from Scripture that Jesus was overwhelmed with this, don't we? If we were to look through the Gospels, there was time where He spent time with the Father seeking His strength. Not my will, but Thy will be done is what our Lord cried out. And what was overwhelming Him? Well, it wasn't just merely the deceit of Judas, though it stung. And it wasn't from the hurt of the disciples, though He knew that they would leave Him. Nor was it completely from from the many blows and the scourging that He took from the insults of the chief priests or from the weak-willed Pilate who gave in to a murderous mob. No, I believe the ultimate struggle he dealt with was the fact that one day at the cross, when he went to the cross, the Father's wrath would be poured out on him. All the Father's anger would be poured out on Jesus. And so he wrestled with that. As he paused for prayer in that garden, he grew in strength to face his final task, And he went through the great trials of injustice. If you know your Bible, Jesus went through six distinct trials in a rushed manner, sort of to pass his condemnation as quickly as they could. And so he was condemned. The true high priest was condemned by false priests because he had interrupted their their cartel of corruption. And now these priests turned and what they did with great envy, they incited this mob. And even though Pilate, I think no less than five times, said, this man is innocent, I find no guilt in this man, they persuaded Pilate, weak-willed Pilate, to execute the king of the Jews. And now we look at the judgment as it passed on Jesus. Matthew goes on to tell us very specifically, and don't miss this, here's the specifics. He said, Jesus was crucified between the third and six hours. We're told here in Scripture that at the third hour, He was crucified. Now their way of telling time is a little different than ours. Uh, The hours of daylight were marked in quarters. So when they say the first hour, they're referring to something like 6 a.m. 
And so when they say the third hour, it's three hours from them, so that gets us about 9 a.m. our time. That's when Jesus was crucified. It was there on that cross that we know from the other Scripture text that other things happened, such as the chief priests and the soldiers and others hurled insults at Jesus. They mocked Him. It was also during that time that He had His conversation with the thieves. Remember one said, if you really are the Son of God, save yourself, save us. And the other one told him to be quiet. And he asked Jesus to remember him in paradise. It was also during this time that Jesus spoke to John, asking him to watch over his mother Mary, and to now that he, she would become his mother. But then Matthew goes on to say something. He says, specifically at the sixth hour... Something happened. And what happened at high noon? Darkness covered the land. Now, much has been written about this darkness. Some believe it's a solar eclipse. A solar eclipse is simply where the moon blocks the sun's light. Some believe that happens, but the problem with that is usually when something like this happened in antiquity, uh, people recorded it. So we don't quite see many other recordings, though it could have happened. But whatever was, whether it was natural or supernatural, Matthew's drawing our attention to this darkness. And when he's saying this, whenever something happens in redemptive history, it always points back to some theological concept, some bigger issue. The question always needs to be asked when we see something in the New Testament happening is where was this seen back in the Old Testament? Where was darkness seen? If you want to look with me in the book, in, your Bible, uh, you can look in Amos, in the 8th chapter. You see, Amos at that time was dealing with a very negligent uh, people of God. They were giving in to great lawlessness. And this fig picker, Amos, this good old boy, was used by God to confront the people and to speak truth to him. And in in chapter 8, verse 9 of Amos, we read this. It will come about, and he's speaking about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, catch this, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Right before that, a couple two verses before that, Amos points out that God says when he is talking to these guilty people, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. As you think about what Amos was talking about, whenever we see prophecy, we see a scope of it. And it points to some future event. And Amos is talking about not only what was happening in his day, that God would remember these guilty acts, but he was pointing to that time of Christ, where the darkness, the judgment of God would fall on his son. You see, this unnatural darkness showed God's great displeasure at man's wickedness. Another passage that highlights God's attitude uh, towards displeasure of man's sin is the darkness that happened in the different plagues that went forth on Egypt during uh, the captivity. The final plague before the Passover, when the angel of death went over the Egyptians and all the firstborn were killed, was the plague of darkness. In it, we read that in Exodus that the darkness was so great the Egyptians did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. That darkness was sort of God's final warning 
that if you do not let my people go, even greater tragedy than this will happen. And as we know, that tragedy was the slaying of all the firstborn that happened during the Passover. I believe Matthew here is saying to his Jewish audience, remember Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. He's saying to them, don't miss this fact. This points back to something else. And as you who know your Old Testament, you should realize this is pointing to God's judgment. One of my favorite pastors is Ligon Duncan from First Pres in Jackson, Mississippi. And he said this about this passage. He said, wait a minute, there's a problem here. The darkness of the terror of the Lord was to be visited upon unrighteousness. But here on the cross, the terror accompanies the punishment and the judgment that God visits on His own Son. You say this doesn't make sense. Why is judgment being poured out on the innocent? And I say it's, that's precisely the point. God is saying here at the cross, His own Son, His perfect Son, the Son of His love is the one who is alone going to face this terror. What should be awarenesses of great evil being done, it points towards our evil and how the Son of Man was going to take it all. <clears throat> it was at that point that Jesus began to endure the Father's wrath. Notice what happens next. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What, what was Jesus saying when he said this? Well, Jesus is quite clearly quoting from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 begins with a question of God's faithfulness. However, it ends vindicating God's servant. So I don't think it's a call of God's faithlessness. Because the psalm goes on to have trust in God. I don't think he's saying it's also not a cry of surprise. My God, my God, why did thou forsaken me? It's not like Jesus knew this wasn't going to happen. He did. But I would offer up to you, it's a cry representing two things. And I think the first one this is aloneness. Simply aloneness. You see, there was complete isolation in Jesus' cry. Sometimes we take companionship for granted. Even when we're alone as God's children, we, we have fellowship with God. But here Jesus was alone, completely alone. And He experienced what no one else could experience. In fact, He experienced hell. You see, Jesus went from complete and perfect favor with His Father to complete and utter abhorment despisement in His relationship to the Father. As one pastor put it, Jesus was facing the epicenter of the earthquake of God's judgment. He was completely alone at ground zero as he faced God's wrath. And it's that knowledge that sort of moves us as the redeemed, knowing that he paid a price that we could not ourselves pay. Charles Wesley penned these words in 1738, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? When we consider the aloneness that he faced, we see how great his redeeming love is for us. And notice too, it's a perfect judgment. There isn't a single thing that's missing in this judgment. Jesus pays for it all. Every little thing. Every law you and I left unfulfilled. Every time you and I went outside the will of the Father. If you are God's child, He paid for it then. He paid for it all with His costly blood. 
But besides the isolation, he also pointed us to something else. And I'd say this, God's refusal to answer. If we were to read the first five verses of Psalm 22, the writer is pointing us to the fact that God refuses to answer his servant. However, as I said earlier, at the end of the psalm, he does. Other times in Scripture when God's judgment or trial is coming on his children, God provides an answer, doesn't he? Remember of Abraham as he took Isaac up? God provided a ram. In Esther's day, during evil Haman and how he wanted to exterminate all the Jews, God provided an answer. And even during the book of Judges, time after the time, God provided a judge to rescue his people. However, in this case, the father's silent. The father does not answer. It is part of God's plan not to rescue him, though isn't it? It's part of His plan not to rescue Him so that He might rescue you and I. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, when He didn't answer, Jesus took all that punishment we deserved. And as a result, the great swap happened. He, Jesus, received all our unrighteousness. And we, those whose hearts would be changed by the Spirit of God, received all His righteousness. And when we did that, an amazing thing happened. Now you and I have the same privileges, the same rights as He does as the Son of God. We are not aliens and strangers, the Bible says. No, we are adopted children. We're part of God's family. He has brought us in. And His silence at this point also shows us something else about the Father, doesn't it? It shows you and I His immense love for each of us. Remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Or in Romans 8, verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? You see, when the Father looked at the cross, He saw the last person He wanted to see. He saw His Son. This was His beloved Son. Remember who He said in front of His disciples, I am well pleased in Him. There is no fault in Jesus. But now His Son is at the cross for you and me. And how this must have grieved the Father. But He poured out all His wrath. You see, the Father does not answer the Son because the Son is taking your sins and mine. The church's sins, so that there might be a people with a new nature and a new heart who are zealous for the deeds of God. The Father set this whole plan in action. Because He loved us. He loved you and me, even when we rebelled and continued to rebel against Him. That is the love of the Father. And it is so humbling. That is why I believe Paul penned those words that the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. When you and I consider the majesty of what God gave on that day for you and I, so that His justice might be accomplished, and that we might be His redeemed children, it transforms us, doesn't it? It makes us want to live for Him and no longer for ourselves. 
It wants us to say, Lord, You are God. And though I don't like it, and though I want to do otherwise, I am going to do Your will, because You are my God. And You have redeemed me. You have paid for my debt. And I am now Your child. You see, when Jesus did all this, as I said before, we have now become His children. And that means we have every right as a child of God. We have the right to come talk to the Father. Oh, let us not take that for granted here in America. We so quickly assume that. That was not a simple right just given on to us because we're Americans and we have God bless the USA on our coins. No, that was a right that was paid for by Christ, by His blood. And so when you and I see Calvary, not only do we see Jesus' love, but we see the Father's love. As He went through this, pouring out His wrath on His Son so that we might become His children. Well, as this event transpired, Matthew uh, draws our attention to sort of three groups of things or people around the event. Three sort of witnesses to the event. And the first one <clears throat> happens this. Some misunderstand Jesus' cries due to their own misunderstanding of God's Word. You see, they knew Elijah hadn't died. If you know your biblical history, Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire. And so when they heard Jesus crying out, they thought, perhaps He's calling for Elijah to save him. But this misses the point. You see, when we read the other text, when we read Mark, we find out that these people really weren't interested in Jesus. They sort of wanted to just see a show. Mark tells us that the guy who Matthew says ran up and gave him a sponge, something to drink really did it for his own motivation. He wanted to see if Elijah would come back. Matthew doesn't get that specific, but Mark does. And it's helpful for us to see that sometimes when people see God at work, they just want to come to see the show. They really miss the important thing going on. But even with these distractions, to maybe get the Son of God interrupted, or unfixed from his goal. Jesus does something very interesting, doesn't he? You see, he is on the cross here, hanging. And when someone dies on the cross, uh, most of you probably know this, but for those who don't, they don't die um, just because, uh, oh, I'm sorry, they, they die because of asphyxiation. It's a very tragic death. What happens is each time they have to push themselves up to breathe because as they hang spread out like this, it collapses the lung. It forces all the pressures on the lung. And so as they're hanging there, the nails don't kill them. What kills them is they have to keep pushing themselves up to breathe. And eventually they wear themselves out. They don't have any more energy to give. They die for lack of oxygen. But Jesus doesn't die that way. Notice what happens. Scripture tells us that He gave up His life. It's not like He got worn out and eventually died. He gives out a final cry, and then Scripture says He gave up His life. Now this is very important for us. Notice this isn't, Jesus is not succumbing to just what all is happening into His flesh. He's making a conscious choice. He is giving up, Scripture tells us, His life. That means He is choosing to do the Father's will. He's choosing to glorify God. And He's choosing to die for you and I. As the Son of God, 
who was very much a part of the making of the whole world, he could have easily escaped this whole deal. Easily commanded angels to come upon them to rescue him. But he did not. He chose to give it up. You know, each of us faces seasons in life where we feel that God is completely not in control. If God were in control, things would be different, right? We say that in our hearts, don't we? When things are bad and frustrating, or maybe as we see our country growing in wickedness, we wonder, where is God? But in the darkest day in the history of mankind, notice who's in control. God is. Not a single thing is escaping Him. Even though great wickedness is happening, the devil is rejoicing because the Son of God is dying. Jesus knows this is all part of the plan to redeem His church. And that helps us to remember that no matter what we go through, God is ultimately in control. So as He gives up this Spirit, Matthew wants us to note three things His death accomplishes. First of all, there's two testimonies that he wants to point out to the church. First is the testimony of the centurion. It's here where the centurion, as he watches the earthquake, as he sees the darkness, as he sees Jesus die, notice what he says. Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, who is the centurion? Is he a man well acquainted with the gospel or the the word of God? No, he's not. He's a pagan. He has grown up probably in Rome or Italy or Greece, somewhere outside Israel. And I think this was Jewish Matthew's way of reminding his Jewish audience that the gospel is no longer yours. Being God's favored people is no longer yours. It's going to spread out. Even the pagans see this. And notice, the pagan officer understood what's going on. The Jews did not. Secondly, it's the presence of the women at the cross. I believe this is Matthew's way of saying he and the rest of the disciples should have been there. When everybody else took off, no, it was these three women whose names are written down for all eternity who stood in the face of great uh, fear to be near their Lord. What a testimony for these women. And that is the example of the churches to follow, Matthew's saying, not the disciples. But I think the last and most telling witness had to do with the curtain. Look with me in verse 51. Matthew adds an editorial comment. The NIV says, at that moment. A better translation is, behold. It's sort of Matthew's way of putting, like when we're on Word, and you bold it, and you underline it, and you italics it. This is Matthew's way of saying, hey, don't miss this. This is huge. The temple's the curtain at the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this is extremely important. You see, the curtain is what surrounded the Holy of Holies. It's where once every year the high priest went in and he offered the blood of the unblemished uh, uh, animals to pay for the uh, sins of the nation. So holy was this place that their robe was literally covered with little bells that every time he stepped it shook and he jingled. It's like one big sleigh. He was constantly jingling. And there was a reason for that. Because when he went in there, if he was not going in with with, with being prayed up and making sure all his sins was confessed and making sure that he came in there with a pure motive, many men had died. That jingling was to let them know he was still alive, meeting with God's presence. 
You see, this was the holiest place on earth. No man entered there without the covering of animal's blood to cover his own sin. But now the perfect sacrifice had been sacrificed. The sacrifice that only needed to happen one time. It didn't need to be repeated like we see in the Catholic Mass. It happens one time. And when Jesus did it, He paid for it all. And notice what Matthew tells us. Immediately, the earth was shaken, rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, so that many of the bodies of the saints who had died were now being raised to eternal life. This was Matthew's way of saying, these are the first fruits of the work of Jesus on the cross. Everything that separated God from His people, even death, was destroyed. This was the death of death at the cross. So, how should we respond to this? Let me read to you what the writer of Hebrews says. In chapter 10, he says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from every evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us... Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of Son. You see, His sacrifice was not only meant for fire insurance, it was meant for life change, to where we are now the children of God. And until He calls us home, we are called to do these things, the let us's, as the writer of Hebrews says, for us to do. That's what happened at the death of death at the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that there isn't a single fact missing from Your Scripture. In fact, it's all there for us. It's all there for us to notice, to be good students of, and to apply to our lives. Jesus, thank You for entering the Holy of Holies. Thank you for ripping down that curtain to where we can enter in and now be your children. Thank you for the precious promises you have given us through what you did on the cross and next week as we look at your resurrection. And Lord, let us, let us do what you call us to do. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.